with the Shelbourne East Center podcast. Welcome to episode 11. Tonight, we're going to talk about the management of patella tendon ruptures. And Scott Bauman is here. My co-host is here tonight as well to give us a rehabilitation perspective, as well as participate in this discussion about how to take care of this problem. It's one that can definitely be difficult, but we uh, have a specific way we like to manage these. We wanted to share with you all tonight. If you want to contact us or follow us, find us on Facebook at the Shelbourne East Center podcast Facebook page or on Twitter and Instagram at the SKC podcast, or feel free to email us at the SKC podcast podcast at gmail.com. We're going to kick off this discussion really where everything starts. Can you can you walk us through the mechanism of injury for patellar tendon rupture? Yeah, it's a pretty specific mechanism of injury. It's usually during an explosive type athletic event uh, when it happens to athletes. So we see this in basketball players, sometimes volleyball players, uh, people like that that are doing explosive jumping. And it usually is a rapid eccentric load. Somebody that's uh, going up for a dunk or landing from a jump from a, from a height, things like that. Uh, and that, that rapid eccentric load just generates a tremendous amount of force at uh, tendon attachments to bone and specifically around the patella tendon at the proximal attachment to the patella um, can, can tear in that area. So um, that's usually the mechanism. Now, once the patient tears their patellar tendon, they come into your office. What's the typical presentation of somebody that does this? It's a big deal injury from the very beginning. The patient knows that something is very wrong with their knee. They usually feel a, a big pop or a tear across the front of the knee. Um, they're often kind of horrified when they look down at their knee and they can see the, that their kneecap has traveled up their thigh higher than it should be and that there's often a pretty visible defect below it, especially before it starts to fill with blood and swelling from the from the injury itself. So usually a big deal injury, the patient often will be taken uh, to an emergency emergency department where they'll see somebody uh, at the beginning to make sure they haven't make sure they haven't broken anything or kind of do the emergent evaluation. So a lot of times these patients come into clinic after they've already been seen, they're in a knee immobilizer on crutches or in a wheelchair. And these people uh, can look pretty bad when they come in, uh, as opposed to the majority of our patients that uh, that walk in the door. From a subjective standpoint, the patients usually describe, as we, as I talked about before, a, a popping or a tearing sensation when they were landing for a jump or doing something explosive. And then older folks, I guess, in, in people who are uh, older that aren't necessarily doing this with athletic um, with athletic participation, uh, we see a lot of these from slipping on the ice, that people go out to shovel off their driveway or to go out to get the mail or to take the trash out, something like that, and they slip on the ice with one side and they try to catch themselves, and that gives them that rapid eccentric load. So sometimes it can be a simple fall or a slip and try to catch themselves that, that, that generates that, uh, that force from a rapid eccentric load. So once you get this patient in your office and you recognize it's a patellar tendon rupture, you're working on the acute management of keeping swelling down and, and whatnot. Obviously, this will go to a surgery case. Is that something where you're rushing right into a surgery, where you're doing it that night, the next morning, or is that something you feel like you can push off for a few days? Well, luckily, from a diagnosis perspective, it's pretty easy to make the diagnosis. Patients come in and describe that to us, and then when you look at them on physical exam, they have a lot of swelling around the patella, uh, around the patella tendon area. Uh, they say, uh, you know, I tried to get up, but as soon as I tried to get up, I fell back down again because I couldn't straighten my leg out, and then eventually I kind of figured out that I couldn't st- keep my leg straight, couldn't lift up my leg. Um, and, uh, that, that loss of active extension is what can make the diagnosis There's also usually a palpable defect at the inferior pole of the patella or, and sometimes a little bit further down if it's a mid substance or distal rupture, but usually this is a pretty 
easy diagnosis to make that the patient can't actively extend the knee and that there's a palpable defect. Uh, in the early time period, uh, when I was going through training, I was always taught that this is an urgency, but not an emergency, that it probably needed to have the patient admitted to the hospital or done within the next day or two uh, to try to get this done as quickly as possible. And the reason is because the quad muscle wants to pull that patella more proximally. And there's always worry about if the patella comes up proximally and starts to scar in that area, that the patient's going to lose motion or have a, a patella alta that would be more permanent. However, when I got to Shelbourne East Center, started working with Dr. Shelbourne, uh, we started to handle these in a little bit different manner, in more of a subacute manner. So we like to get to these not necessarily urgently. In fact, the opposite. We like to give these people a little bit of time to get the swelling down, to even start to move the knee somewhat uh, into into some range of motion, to let the soft tissues around the knee calm down. And we feel like that it's an easier surgery uh, and that the the soft tissue is kind of congealed in that area. Those ends of the tendon are a little bit more robust and easier to suture. And that also the patients are in less pain, have less swelling, have less soft tissue edema or making our incision, which we think may help with prevention of infection risk. Um, so we, uh, a lot of people will tell you that you have to handle these right away. We look at it a little bit different, usually trying to get these on the schedule within about seven to 10 days. Yeah, that was my next question is if you can delay this a little bit, is that 10 day really the cutoff? Is there any time where you'd say, yeah, that's a little bit too late? You know, if somebody's on vacation or, or, or whatnot, they have a reason why they don't want to do the surgery right away. Would you really push that at some point? We've definitely had people that have come in later than that. Dr. Shelbourne likes to tell a specific story about a guy that he knew that injured himself when he was in Florida. You know, we're in Indianapolis. A lot of a lot of our patients are in some of our patients are in Florida for the winter. And he came back like six or eight weeks after his initial injury and said, I knew that I needed to have surgery, but I didn't really want to have it when I was in Florida, even though they told me I probably should. I figured you could just fix it when we get back to town. And it was two months later when he got this fixed. And luckily that patient went on to do to do more. It's it's definitely a different animal if it develops into more of a chronic rupture. I've had probably four or five uh, cases in the last few years where patients have come in with missed ruptures where they, they didn't know that they had a patella tendon rupture, didn't go and see anybody, and it's developed into more of a chronic tendon rupture situation. That's a totally different animal. But if we're getting to these um, relatively acute, there's not really a maximum time. Um, but the for us, the, the golden time is kind of in that seven to 10 day uh, area. I think anything more than about two or three weeks, you better be getting this done as soon as possible. So let's talk about the typical patient and you're seeing them seven to 10 days after injury. Can you walk us through and tell us a little bit about what the surgical technique looks like in this patient population? Just a quick note, we'd like to see them a little bit earlier than that. We like to get these patients into the office as quickly as we possibly can, uh, even though we're not going to do the surgery right away. Uh, but the, for initial management, we put patients in a thigh-high TED stocking to give them some compression. We put them in a cryo cuff to try to decrease the knee effusion. And we actually preoperatively will put these patients in a CPM machine. And I know some people are probably going to think that's a little bit nuts, but I've seen some real improvements clinically in these patients over that seven to 10 day period where that consistent elevation and that little bit of gentle motion helps to get the swelling down and helps to make them actually more comfortable. It seems counterintuitive that if you bend the knee, that you're going to be pulling the tendon rupture apart further and that it's going to be very painful. And we find quite the opposite. The patients come in and can barely move their knee and they're in a lot of pain. You put them in the CPM machine, bend their knee just from zero to 30, just a little bit of gentle range of motion. And that as the swelling goes down and the knee gets more comfortable moving, the patient's in less pain. And I think 
that helps with uh, the pre-surgical preparation and with the uh, with the post-operative recovery helps them keep them in a little bit less pain. From a surgical technique perspective, these this is a hundred percent of the time a surgical problem. There's a lot of things that we do that are difficult discussions with patients to try to figure out who's a good candidate, who's a bad candidate. Will patients get better non-surgically? Will they not? In this particular problem, the discussion is much more straightforward. Unfortunately, there really isn't a good way to manage this non-surgically, and this is pretty much a surgical discussion 100% of the time. There's really two main ways to go about fixation of a patella tendon rupture. Uh, when I was a resident, I learned uh, the technique that I don't necessarily use anymore, which is to to use a like a beef pin that we use for ACL surgery with an eyelet at the end of it uh, to drill holes in the patella. So you one up in the one up the middle of the patella, and then one on either side. So you have a medial hole, a lateral hole, and a central hole. And then when you use your suture technique up and down the patella to grasp the patella and then pull it back, then you run those those sutures up through those bone tunnels and tie it over the top of the patella which kind of pulls that back to the to the inferior pole of the patella. We usually use suture anchors for this instead of doing that technique. I think that first one, tying it through, uh, through bone tunnels over the top of the patella is probably biomechanically even a little bit superior, uh, but uh, it's definitely a lot easier to use suture anchors. So we like to put suture anchors in the inferior pole of the patella or wherever the rupture is, and then use those uh, those sutures that come out from the from the anchor to go up and down the patella with a grasping type stitch, a crack out stitch, which is a grasping, running, locking suture that really grasps the tissue well, and then use that to tie it back down to the patella. So when talking about the surgery, I know there's different ways that surgeons can augment that repair. Is there any type of augmentation that you use with this patient population? Yeah, there is. And I think that's a really important part of what we do differently, uh, that we use a braided metal cable to try to augment to, to augment the repair. And that really provides a couple specific advantages. When I was learning how to do patella tendon rupture repairs, I was always told to extend the knee and get the, the tendon back up to the patella. And we kind of do it a little bit differently in that we use that cable to pull the patella down to the, ten down to the ruptured tendon. Uh, so we make sure that we don't fix the tendon in, in too proximal a position. So when we do this, we'll put the suture anchors in, we'll run the sutures down and up the patella in a running interlocking fashion. So we have uh, that, that good tendon uh, tendon interlocking suture that's going to pull it back up to the patella. And then we'll drill a hole across the patella at about a third of the way down from the proximal end of the patella, um, and then run a two millimeter uh, or one six millimeter braided cable through the patella. And then we'll also go down distally, uh, just distal to the tibial tubercle insertion and drill a drill hole through the tibial tubercle as well and put the cable through that. We then will measure the lateral view of the opposite knee, the uninjured knee, and figure out what the patella tendon length is on the normal side. Once we have that, then we'll pull the patella down with the cable uh, in order to get it to the same length as the other side. And then once we've set it at that length, then we'll crimp the cable before we even suture the, suture the tendon back together. That holds the tendon at a fixed length, and we do that at about 60 degrees of flexion. So we'll put a bump underneath the leg, let the knee come down into some flexion uh, after we have the cable in place, and then we'll actually tighten the cable to pull the patella distally down to the tendon rupture and then crimp it at that specific length. 
length. Once we have the tendon at the right length, then we go ahead and tie the sutures, which actually does the job of, you know, specifically pulling it down to the to the patella tendon insertion. And and it's a, it's a technique that I learned from Dr. Shelbourne that I that I think is an excellent one because it allows us to hold the patella through a fixed length and be more aggressive from a physical therapy standpoint postoperatively, which we'll talk about a little bit later. There are other methods of tendon augmentation. Some people like to use allograft or uh, even sometimes autograft hamstring tendons. That's more in the chronic state, but sometimes even in the injured state, if they don't feel like the tendons of good quality, there are different kinds of biologics that could potentially augment the patella tendon repair. Um, There's other kinds of like fiber tape and other kinds of suture devices to try to augment the patella tendon repair in some way. However, we like the cable because of how rigid it is that it can hold the tendon at a fixed length and can allow us to be a lot more aggressive from a therapy perspective. Sounds like there's a lot of benefits with the braided cable. Are there any downsides to this versus other augmentation methods? No doubt there is. There's the extra operation to take it out. The cable, while it does a good job of protecting the repair throughout range of motion early on after surgery, allows us to be more aggressive uh, and not lock the patient up quite so much from a function standpoint. There is another operation that needs to be done later to take it out. As we talk more about the rehabilitation goals uh, that we have early on or the rehabilitation progress that we have early on, we believe that that really sets it apart and makes it more than worth it for the second surgery. The second surgery for the cable removal is a pretty simple one. We make just a portion of the incision, probably a one or two inch portion of the incision, dissect over to the cable where the clasp is, cut it, and then pull it out. The tourniquet time on that surgery is literally less than five minutes most of the time. And then we close the incision back up and the the, the incision closure takes about as long as it does to remove the cable. So it's still surgery. The patient's still going to sleep for an operation. There's still a risk of infection and things like that. However, knock on wood, we have not had trouble with cable removal surgeries leading to complications after that. And it's a pretty low risk operation that uh, we believe is more than worth it for the benefit that we get from it. Now, is there an average time from patellar tendon repair to the cable removal? It's not necessarily a specific amount of time. It's much more about their range of motion progression. So we actually let these patients uh, flex their knee early on after surgery to pretty much whatever they can tolerate. We do assess that during surgery, how quickly there becomes a lot of tension on the repair, but more so in quad tendons than patella tendons. In quad tendons, we don't have the ability to augment it in the same way because we don't have any bony attachment proximal to the quadriceps tendon uh, to make kind of a box around the repair. On the patella tendon side, we do, so we can get pretty aggressive with range of motion, even right after surgery, even the day after surgery, uh, to try to maintain function as best we can. Eventually, though, the cable becomes limiting to flexion. That's usually when the knee gets to about 110 to 115 degrees of flexion, and it's usually around the six or eight-week time point that that starts to restrict their range of motion. Uh, Six weeks is kind of a minimum because we think that does take at least that much time to be able to get the tendon to heal, but it's really determined by when it becomes limiting to range of motion. And that kind of transitions naturally, Scott, into you talking a little bit more about how we rehabilitate these patients. So as we we talked about, I do the repair, I assess in surgery how aggressively I think we can move things, and then I turn this over to our physical therapy staff. So early on, talk about what the early rehabilitation after patella tendon rupture with with, uh, cable augmentation and what that looks like. 
Well, to start this conversation, I will say that treating a patient after a patellar tendon repair using a cable like this is really a uh, physical therapist's dream because there's really not anything that we're going to do that's necessarily going to hurt the repair. When you're seeing these patients in a setting that's outside of our office where they're either using soft tissue augmentation or no augmentation at all, you really do have to limit how much flexion, especially that you give the patient or allow them to go to because they are going to pull on that repair with every you know increasing degree of flexion that they they can get to and you have to limit that usually per the surgeon's protocol and, and what they feel like they can let you do postoperatively so outside of this setting it's a really close relationship with that surgeon to to get a sense of how far to go and and how far you how much more you can take them each and every increasing week. However, with the way that we manage these from a rehabilitation standpoint, it really is pretty easy. You know, we really focus on swelling management and, and range of motion to start. So there, you mentioned the CPM preoperatively. We do have these patients in a postoperative CPM as well. Same thing as preoperative though. They're moving from zero degrees to 30 degrees, just having some gentle motion, mainly to keep that knee elevated, to keep the swelling to an absolute minimum and using a crowd cuff to, to prevent more of a hemarthrosis. So that's the, the really acute period of the first week or so. We do give them some motion exercises to work on, your typical extension exercises like towel stretches and heel props and things like that. But typically in this patient population, extension is not something that's really difficult to get back. It's really about how much you can and how fast you can get their flexion back, which again, after about six or eight weeks, you start being limited with deflection based on the cable. But that's a, in my opinion, it's a good problem to have because you really are pushing things. And if the cable is limiting them, then you take the cable out. I always tell patients it's really more of a, a speed bump of recovery versus, you know, altering the, the path of rehabilitation. So the big focus in those first six or eight weeks is going to be flexion progression. And like you said, we typically see it max out over the course of the first six to eight weeks at about 115, 120 degrees even. And then you will feel a hard stop. It's not one of those where you're questioning whether or not it's the cable that's stopping the knee or not, you'll, you'll feel that t cable tension and, and the patients will just tell you, yeah, I just can't go any further because it, it feels like something's stopping me and, and something is stopping them. It's, it's the cable. So that's when we get in touch with the surgeons again and we schedule the surgery for the cable removal. Now, the other thing that's nice about the cable is once we get to that six or eight week time point, because we have the reassurance that the repair is going to be protected by the cable, we can move into some some light strengthening exercises, even low impact conditioning. You know, you, you only need about 105, 110 degrees to go, get around on a bike. And we, we definitely get patients that still have the cable in up on a bike. And if they have 120 degrees of flexion, they're doing some light strengthening and some light biking to help condition that knee until they get that cable out. One thing I, I didn't mention earlier is the leg control aspect of things. So we mentioned the focus is keeping swelling to a minimum and keeping range of motion progressing forward. We do want to make sure that leg control is, is normal. We have these patients in a knee immobilizer for generally about two or three weeks, and there's really no time stipulation to that. It's it's basically whenever the patient has full leg control, and that's typically seen after a couple, maybe three weeks for patients that are a little bit on the slower end. But once they have that normal leg control and they can do a straight leg raise on the table, they can do a, a knee extension off the side of the table, we feel pretty confident that they can walk without the immobilizer. And like I said, that's usually about that three-week time point. And then again, it's flexion progression, get them on the low-impact conditioning like a bike, or uh, and then start some light strengthening until that cable comes out.
That's a lot different than what I saw in training. And I, I was really surprised when I got back to Shell Warning Center, started seeing some of these patients, how much more quickly they were progressing than what I had seen in training. A lot of times these patients were in a cast or in a knee immobilizer brace that was not being removed at all for the first six weeks. By the time they got to the six week mark, that quad had really kind of shriveled up. The knee was very stiff. The patient hadn't had much ability to get around and do much from a, from an exercise perspective. And uh, it was a long, long way to go from the time you got past that six, six week time point, started moving the knee for them to really return to function. However, our patients are able to start bending the knee right away. A lot of these people come back even at the two week mark and have 90 degrees of flexion already. And uh, we're, and once that uh, you mentioned, the, the bracing is only a temporary measure, only when they're up, we let them weight bear to, to weight bear to tolerance from the very beginning. And we also let them out of the brace whenever they're not uh, up and weight bearing. And, uh, you know, I, I, we've seen a couple of these patients that, that have come from elsewhere that have had complications on down the road. Or if I think back to when I was in training, when I would see these patients at that six, eight week mark after they'd been in a uh, in an immobilizer and what the leg looked like versus our patients that at six or eight week time point, what they look like. These patients in our hands at, at the eight week mark have full extension. They have flexion a lot of times of about 110, 115 degrees. They have good leg control. They are walking without an immobilizer. They can easily lift their leg. Some of them can tolerate some biking and some light knee extensions with a weight over the end, over the end of the bed. So uh, a, a markedly different thing. And, um, you know, talk a little bit about that, Scott. Have you Did you see any of these patients before you worked at Shelbourne Knee Center? And uh, how did those compare? Yeah, I absolutely did see these before I got to the Shelburne Knee Center. And to be honest with you, they were very tough to treat. And a lot of the reasons was because of what you were saying. You had to be very slow with the rehab because it was a delicate repair. And the last thing you want to do as a physical therapist is uh, upset the surgeon. And if you're having a patient that had a patellar tendon repair, come back at an eight-week visit and they have 150 degrees of flexion, that's usually not a good thing. Because uh -oh. you, <laughs> yes, you, you probably let them go too fast or or they didn't listen to you or, or whatnot. So it, it's uh, it's mentally tough. It's physically tough for the patient to limit them because they usually feel like they can go go further. And I'm, I'm talking again before I got here when they when they don't have any type of augmentation. So from a physical therapy standpoint, it was honestly just very difficult and the patients were hard to manage and the long-term outcomes were, were challenging because if you limit them so early so much in the, in the early time point after surgery, the ability to get, let's say 150 degrees of flexion is normal to their other side. If you're limiting them to 60 and 70 and 80 and you're increasing five or 10 degrees per week for the first couple months, they're still only at, you know, maybe 90 degrees at that, at that point, if, if that. So, you know, like you said, a lot of other protocols will, will just have rigid bracing or something for a period of time. And that makes the patient pretty stiff to the point where they may never get back to full flexion in a, in a scenario where they're not having it augmented like we do here. That's something I had to change the paradigm around how I thought about these as well with this method is that I think a lot of those patients are told, especially older patients that may not be that athletic, that may have torn their patella tendon, uh, you know, slipping and falling when they were mowing the grass or, or shoveling snow like we like we talked about before. I think a lot of those people are just told, unfortunately, you're going to lose some bending, your knee's going to be weak, and that's just part of recovering from a patella tendon rupture. And I think, unfortunately, that does sell some of these patients short that, you know, that this is kind of 
of sold to patients as uh, this is something that is going to lead to you having less than normal knee for the foreseeable future. And we really like to use the cable, even though it does require another operation to uh, to be able to say, you know, what, we're not going to accept anything less than what uh, what's the best we can get for our patients and, you know, and, and utilize all the advantages that we can. Scott, talk a little bit about what the patient's uh, progression is like after we take that cable out. How do you handle the post-surgical rehabilitation and how do those patients progress? Sure. And like I said, when I talk to these patients uh, that are getting ready to have the cable removed, I tell them it's really just a speed bump in the recovery. We don't have them typically have the CPM anymore. It's usually only a three-day relative bed rest period compared to the one week like we had with the repair. They go into surgery with full extension, really minimal swelling. Again, they've been working on the biking. They've been working on light strengthening. They were maximized on their flexion before the cable removal surgery because the cable was limiting them, and usually that's around 120 degrees. And they come out of surgery, and they can usually get 125, 130 degrees, so about 5 to 10 degrees more at that first visit, which is three days post-op after the cable removal surgery. And because we still have minimal swelling after that, they get their their motion back pretty quick. Uh, Typically around four weeks after cable removal, they're going to be equal to the other side from a knee extension and flexion standpoint. And then swelling, again, is so minimal after this, this cable removal surgery that they really have minimal to no swelling a month after the cable removal. So now we're talking from the primary uh, surgery where they had the tendon repaired is usually about three months because you're about two or three months after until you get the cable remover out. So from the initial surgery, they're now three months out and they have full motion, minimal swelling, and they've been working on strengthening. And we even strength test these these patients usually about four months out from the original repair, so maybe two months outside of the cable removal surgery. And they're usually about 75% or so compared to the other side. And because we really hit the motion goal so quickly after the cable removal, we can really work into the strengthening. The benefit of the cable is they've been utilizing strengthening exercises to gain strength before the cable was taken out. So they just really hit the ground running after surgery, and it's really a continuation of the rehab that they had that they were going through with the cable when the cable was removed and then uh, again we continue to strength train and uh, strength test these patients and we typically see what we would call symmetric strength 90 percent or more from an lsi standpoint compared to the other side usually after about three months after the cable removal which puts them about five or six months post-op from the initial surgery I'm always surprised at how quickly these patients do progress once they get the cable out. They get up to the point where they're 90 degrees, they're 100 degrees, they're 110, then about 115, then they kind of stop. And you wonder, you know, if I take this cable out and they push it really aggressively, how quickly is that going to progress? And is this going to put my repair at risk? And I'm always shocked that when, you know, people, when I see these patients two weeks out, four weeks out, something like that, how quickly they're able to get the rest of their flexion back once the cable's out and that the x-rays don't show that the there's been any proximal translation of the patella. Uh, we've had enough time where the tendon has reliably healed. So, you know, I think just in, in, in closing up with this group of patients, um, just not selling these patients short, that even though it is another, uh, another operation to augment with the cable, I th- think the, uh, the benefits definitely outweigh the, uh, the potential risks. Well, and to touch on something that is related to that point there, I think the mental aspect of rehab is so much easier when the patients are augmented with a rigid fixation like the cable. And that's before the cable is removed as well as after. When it's in, they have all the confidence in the world because they know that there's something rigid. It's a steel cable, basically, that's not allowing them to to hurt the repair. There's constant affirmation to the patient telling them, 
you can push this to the point where the cable is going to stop you and, and they always question you. There's just no way. I, I feel like I'm going to rip my repair. You're not going to rip the repair. You're going to hit the cable. That's the whole point of what the cable is doing. So they gain confidence not only in you, but they gain confidence in their own knee going through the rehab with flexion. And then after the cables removed, you mentioned that they come back pretty quickly with with the rest of the flexion as well as the strength. And I attribute that a lot to the confidence mentally that they gained before surgery or before the cable removal surgery. You know, they were trusting their leg. They were putting weight on it. They were out of the immobilizer after two weeks. They were starting strengthening exercises as early as four to six weeks after the primary repair to the point where the cable removal takes place. They really do hit the ground running. And they have so much confidence, and I, I do attribute that a lot to the fact that they had the cable in there that gave them that confidence to progress so quickly. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about some data that we've had from a previous study on this, my partner, Dr. Shelbourne, and one of his former fellows did a study on this. It was in the American Journal of Knee Surgery. It's referenced on PubMed in winter of 2001, entitled Patella Tendon Rupture Repair Using Doll Miles Cable by Shelbourne and others. And in that study, they looked at 10 patients who underwent patella tendon repair with the cable augmentation as well that went through this, this early rehabilitation that we're talking about. The cable was removed around that six or eight week time point. And if we look at flex Flexion in these patients, their average flexion at two weeks was 88 degrees. By a month, it had improved to 112 degrees. Around the two-month time, they took the cable out. By the three-month mark, they were at 133 degrees and 136 degrees at uh, at six months compared to 141 on the non-involved knee. So you see the patients did progress as quickly as we're talking about. Mean quadricep strength was still down in that group at 72%. But I think this, you know, this is a 20-some-year-old study. I do think we've gotten progressively better over time, probably something we need to revisit and republish again to show what uh, what important improvements the patients have been able to make over time. The interesting thing in talking to Dr. Shelbourne about this population is how much of this stuff he was able to learn about this population, specifically by just observing patients, which has always been a way that he's learned a lot of things, but specifically as it related to things like active knee extension early on after surgery, and also as far as like how far to let these patients go with flexion. Uh, he tells stories specifically about going in to see patients afterwards that have their leg in the CPM machine. And he went in, so how's the knee feeling? And they said, yeah, my knee's feeling better. Look. And they lift their leg up the day of surgery when he had told them, oh my gosh, don't do that. They'd done it anyway. And it scared the crap out of him, he said. And he couldn't believe that, you know, he was, went to examine the patient, make sure they didn't tear anything up. Uh, but then started to think after seeing that a few times, you know what? Why should I stop them? The cable's in there. It's protecting the repair. And now I'm, I do, I ask the patients to do that after I fix the patella tendon rupture. Can you lift your leg up? And if they can do it under their own power, I allow them to because the cable has them protected. I would bet that if we looked at our, uh, our, our, research database for these patients that uh, we would see as good or maybe even a little bit better progression of uh, of the flexion nowadays compared to when we used to do them. But that's something we definitely need to continue to keep looking at. So that about wraps up the episode uh, on management of patellar tendon ruptures. And just to summarize it, especially from a physical therapy perspective, it's really a, an easier way to treat this patient population. When you augment it with a rigid fixation like the cable, you can be pretty aggressive early on with the flexion because, again, you're protecting that repair with the cable. And like Dr. Benner had mentioned, the, the downside of this method is the fact that you have to have another surgery to take the cable out. But it's a pretty quick surgery, pretty benign surgery. It's a very easy surgery to recover from and really just hit the ground running from a rehab standpoint and progress on with finishing off the range of motion and then starting to work on strengthening until that's really equal to the other side. 
which again is much different than utilizing other methods that is not augmented or augmented with some type of soft, soft tissue augmentation. If you have any questions on today's episode or really anything that you want to uh, have answered from previous episodes, you can visit us on Twitter and Instagram at the SKC podcast. You can visit us on our SKC Facebook page or email us at the SKC podcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you guys next week. Mm-hmm.